Hey guys, just a quick content warning for today's episode. There is mention of murder and gore, so if you're not okay with that, now is your time to click off. But in the let's start today's episode. <laughs> hey guys. Hey. We're back, and we also have a guest star. Yeah, Hello. for like the first time in forever. The one and only Grace it's Measles. Me. Yeah. I do Ooh. me with back with more bank robberies. Yep. She was on here a long time ago, but now <laughs> along she's back. with Tisha. Oh, last year, I guess you could say. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's so true. Also, that was very last season. Oh, sorry, oh, sorry. Oh my wow. god. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> uh, we're back. <laughs> we were back last week, but okay. That's so true. Anyways, I'm gonna start with my case today. Um, mine is um known as the Grim Sleeper, who's a serial killer from California. Um, and this one's actually from a Rolling Stone article I'm referring to. And but the Grim Sleeper name was coined by the LA Weekly in 2008. Oh, so this is pretty recent. Yeah, yeah. This one is more recent than some of the ones that we've done. Well, actually, no, the foot one you did was pretty recent. Yeah, true. Out of context, that sounds really bad. <laughs> um, but Lonnie Franklin Jr. Um, had sat silent and emotionless in a Los Angeles courtroom for over six years, never uttering a word in his own defense, um, except for saying, I've never seen you before in my life, to the sister of the victim named Georgia Mae Thomas. Um, again, he's known as the Grim Sleeper, and... He got that name in 2008 after a victim was linked to a string of murders that occurred in the 1980s. Um, It's possible he's murdered as many as 25 women, made him one of the most prolific American killers. And this year, 2008, because that's when the article was released, Mm -hmm. um, he was finally convicted for the deaths of nine women and and a teenage girl. After six years of waiting, three and a half months on trial, and one day of jury deliberation, he was then sentenced to death on August 10th, 2016. Wait. Yeah. Sorry, I apologize. The article came out in 2016. The LA Weekly one came out in 2008. Okay. I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) Which is exactly 31 years after the the death of its first confirmed victim, Deborah Jackson, which is in 1985. Um, And he had shot her three times in the chest. And he went on using the same gun in nine nine attacks, which is a .25 caliber gun. I don't know about guns. So, but if you wanted to know. I think that's a pretty average, like, pistol, I think. Or I, d- like I didn't even gun. know that was a pistol. I don't know either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was so loud. <laughs> that was, oh, my God. So loud. That's my goal is to be as loud as possible. Anyways. <laughs> and then he was known for assaulting and strangling more. And he kept photos of his victims in his house, which is creepy. Yeah, that was creepy. Hey, family. It's a little spooky. Spooky walking. Yeah. But um, um, despite his conviction, some details are still, like, unclear. Um, like, whether he was truly, quote-unquote, sleeping during the alleged downtime or why it took the Los Angeles Police Department nearly 25 years to arrest the person responsible for the deaths of at least 10 victims. Yeah. Because that's a lot of people. Yeah. Especially, like, in, like, one area. Too. Yeah, yeah. Because, like, the Golden State Killer, like, oh yeah, he yeah. had a lot of victims, but, like, it was spread throughout, like, like this however like large radius but this dude 10 victims in one like central area yeah and it <sighs> says members of the south central communities plagued by his crime suggest this was due to the fact that his victims were mainly black women mostly um addicts and prostitutes oh that makes sense <laughs> yeah and then in a report in 2008 by the la weekly they noted that the more recent delays are the results um 
as the new murders were discovered during an election year. And then they're still trying to figure out stuff after many decades. Because, I mean, this was since the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And this article came out in 2016, which isn't too far. I mean, it's about eight years ago, but still. I hope that math is correct. Right? Eight years <laughs> since yeah. 2016? That's not correct. Oh, <laughs> wait, 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 no. That's six uh, plus eight. Oh, six years. Six plus eight. <laughs> no, wait. Six plus eight is 24. Not 24. 16. <laughs> 16 plus eight would be 24. My bad. But four? 22 six. minus 16 is six. So it's six years ago. Oh my, this is so stupid. Yeah, uh, it's six years ago. <laughs> it's okay, guys. This is. <laughs> uh. <laughs> So Th- this is why we don't have a math podcast. Exactly. <laughs> so anyways, um, they had talked about how he didn't really fit the profile of a serial killer. Uh, Franklin was described by his neighbors as friendly and quiet, you know, just minded uh, his own business. Um, he often just worked on cars in his front yard, chatted with everyone. No one ever really raised an eyebrow. That's how they always are. Yeah. So So people were shocked to find out what that it was him, and they were like, what? <laughs> But um, more specifically, over 80% of serial killers are white between the ages of 20 and 30. And Franklin happened to be a black male who committed his first murder at the age of 32. Mm-hmm. And then um, his victims strayed from the standard standard profile, too. While serial murders mostly targeted white women, the victims of the Grim Sleeper were all black women. Um, and then we talked about how his targets with addicts, um, prostitutes. Yeah. And then, moreover... His murders began in the mid-1980s in parts of Los Angeles where the use of many drugs, especially cocaine, were being used. Mm -hmm. Um, And then several other killers were known to go into the area as well, looking for prostitutes, drug addicts, that kind of thing, um, who were later found murdered in alleys, parks, or trash bins, and dumpsters. Mm. The killings were so rampant that the Black Coalition Fighting Black Serial Murders was formed in 1989 and protested the LAPD's lack of policing in areas where the murders had happened. The coalition fell. It was it was irresponsible and racially motivated, according to the Rolling Stone, that information about the murders and the profile were not released in order to better protect black women in the south central area of um, LA. And similar frustrations were aired during um, Bill Bratton's early 2000s reign as the police commissioner in LA, mm-hmm. when he and some elected officials paid no public mind to the resurgence of murder in black neighborhoods. Even with the identity of the killer um, still, like, unknown, the Los Angeles Police Department did not alert communities of possible danger or assemble a special task to solve the Grim Sleeper murders after two bodies were discovered in 2002-2003. Although the LAPD saw a pattern in the murders of the late 1980s and early 2000s, they did not share this new discovery with the families of those killed. Which... I don't know. Maybe they just did because they don't want to scare them. But yeah, but also like, I, I feel like I, it's your responsibility yeah. to to tell them. Yeah. Um, the only known survivor is Anitra Washington, um, and the woman whose bullet wounds were matched with those in the cold cases. Finally, adding a description of the attacker to the LAPD's um, little existing evidence, and then taking the stand to testify against the the man who had shot and assaulted her in 1988. Washington um, noted how Franklin pulled up alongside her in an or- orange Ford Pinto, and he had offered her a ride. Uh, yeah. Uh. But it says she initially declined the offer, 
but he had said some remarks um, that were very misogynistic. Um, Ew. Yeah. And she said she, in quotes, had felt sorry for him, and then she then accepted the ride. Oh. Oh. Because he was just kind of, like, getting mad. He was like, people can't be nice. And yeah. Yeah. That. Um, and then she realized he'd been um, shot and asked um, she realized she'd been shot and asked Franklin why, to which he responded that she disrespected him. Wait, so he yeah, shot sorry. her? Yeah, that's what it's saying, because it says after a while, oh, after a while in the car, she felt blood coming from her chest, and then she was, like, realized, like, he had shot her. That's what it says according to her statement. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah. And well, then she, she realized uh, she'd been shot, she out, and she was like, why? Yeah. Well, so much shock, you know? Yeah. You, was she on drugs? Like, was she one of the drug addicts? That, um, or was she just a normal lady? Like? It doesn't really say. Okay. Um, but yeah, I'm not seeing anything. It could just yeah, it could just be like he was driving shocked. and just saw a lady walking and yeah. Yeah. He then soon pushed her from the vehicle and left her for dead just uh, out in the middle of the road. Ooh. Um, but, but that's where you make your mistake because people survive that a lot. Oh yeah. Like that's how she. Um, yeah, but it says, but not before he had assaulted her and proceeded to take her photo. Okay. Um, she lived, though, uh, and she finding help and then telling a story that would contribute to the capture of him and giving a lot of evidence. Yeah, yeah, like, the physical... Yeah, she survived that. She got yeah. shot in the chest, too. Yeah. And, like, even just the physical description, like, can help a lot. So, mm-hmm. like, that's awesome that she survived. And then, um, fast-forwarding to early 2010, using DNA collected from the scenes of the murders, detectives had linked the crime to a relative of Franklin's, whose DNA was in the system, his son named Christopher, who had been arrested for a felony weapons possession back in 2009. Mm -hmm. A district attorney named Steve Cooley has believed, said he believes this is the first time a familial DNA search has been used successfully in the state. Mm-hmm. Armed with evidence, undercover officers finally obtained DNA samples of Franklin, following him to a birthday party in an L.A. restaurant. An officer acted as a busboy, collected Franklin's plate and pizza crust, with having enough evidence to finally convict him of murder. Oh, dang. Not the pizza crust. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I've never heard of that before. Was it out of Chuck E. Cheese? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> but then in court, Franklin's or- lawyers cited in quotes, reasonable expectation of privacy. Oh, As a no, you're in public place. And that's the restaurant's... Sorry, I just, I'm just i not arguing against you. Oh, no. I'm arguing against his lawyer. Like, you're in a public place, plus the once you're done with your food, that then becomes the restaurant's property. Like, their private property. Because it's their trash. I, I'm sorry. I, <laughs> I've never worked in a restaurant. I don't know. <laughs> But it says, as a reason, the DNA should be thrown out. But the claim of discarded food being private was overruled. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, yeah. I should be a lawyer. <laughs> no, <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> but then it says, upon his arrest in 2009, Franklin's home was searched, and detectives found nearly 1,000 photos of women and teenage girls in many conditions. I won't state. Yeah. Um, and then they took those into evidence. After identifying the known victims, the police began to wonder if there were more murders tied to the Grim Sleeper. Right. At a press conference last spring, Los Angeles police chief um, told reporters, We certainly don't believe we are so lucky or so good as to know all of his victims. We need the public's help. Yeah. And then they said it's common for serial killers to take breaks in between killings, 
but at least in this case, there is a 14-year gap. Um, a 14-year gap, and it just didn't seem likely. Right. Though they're not charged for his murder, police believe Franklin is responsible for the death of Thomas Steele, who was assumed to be the friend of one of his victims, uh-huh. as well as anywhere from 14 um, to 100 solved murders of Jane Doe's. Mm-hmm. Franklin maintains his innocence in all charges brought against him, so DNA and witnesses may be the only means to solve these crimes. And while the investigations are ongoing, the detectives speculate as to whether Franklin was truly hiding after the botched murder of Washington in 1988. Mm-hmm. Um, and if anyone could cover up a dead body, they said it was him because he was a sanitation worker for the city. Uh, and he had access to landfills, leading officials right. to speculate that he could have disposed any numbers of bodies undetected. Right. Undetected. Yeah. Which, yeah, because I'm assuming he knows how to clean up, especially, like, blood. Right. Which is yeah. hazardous. <laughs> um, and it says, regardless of what to follow with the other investigations, Franklin is the last in line of the nearly 750 inmates on death row at San Quentin State Prison. He's the last? Yeah. What did all these other people do that, I mean, I'm not in support. <laughs> uh, you have to read about 750 people. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not going to read about 750 people. Yeah. <laughs> Where no one has been put to death since 2006. That's okay. how long that line was. Yeah. Um, his conviction will automatically be appealed, a right afforded to anyone sentenced to death, but it's safe to assume that Franklin will live out his life in jail and not go on to kill again. Yeah. Yay. And then, again, that was from the Rolling well, Stone. Yeah. Which, um, I know they they've done some long stories over like true crime cases like i read that yeah. one about that one um musician from washington mia yeah yeah and she had gotten murdered mm-hmm. sad because yeah because that was like a um like a rock star yeah so like it makes sense yeah i don't know but, but <laughs> <laughs> i just want to know what 750 people like i'm not in support of the death death penalty at yeah. all whatsoever um, but like 750 people did to like what like ha- put heinous, him at the end, right? Yeah, right. That put him at the end of the line when he killed at least was it 14 confirmed, or was it 10? I can't remember. Yeah, sorry, my right the internet right just crashed. <laughs> um, but like he had a large amount of confirmed murders. And he's at the end of the line. Is it a, is it like a line like like in terms of how bad or just like in terms of when they came to the prison? I guess it's just like waiting for like like waiting for the because uh, like they're all, they're all on death row. Yeah. So, so like, were they did they just commit murders first? Yeah, That's a I'm good assuming because I don't really know the whole like death row I process because like I don't know if they do one like how consistent it is like yeah. if it's like a process you have to wait like months and years for. Because yeah. I know, like, there's people on death row who have been waiting for years and they eventually die in prison. Not, like, the death penalty, right. but, like, they just grew old or they got right. sick or something. Right. Um, well, and it's also cheaper to keep people in prison rather than killing them. Yeah, definitely. Grace, do you want to go? Yeah, I'll go next. Okay. Okay. Woo! I, okay, so the story I have today is the Dunbar Armored Robbery, which is the largest cash robbery to have occurred, like, on the U.S. soil. Like, it's on the U.S., in the U.S. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, and it uh, happened in 1997 on September 12th, where six men robbed the Dunbar Armored Facility on Mateo Street in downtown Los Angeles. Um, the amount of money they took 
ended up being eighteen point nine million dollars. <gasps> All in cash. Holy yeah, cow. no, all in cash. However, oh, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I could easily do that. Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Just Ooh. kidding, guys. I don't rob banks. <laughs> I'm gonna submit this podcast oh. to the police. Nope. Um. However, due to inflation, the equivalent today would Not be thirty. <laughs> would be thirty point five million dollars as of oh, 2020. Oh my god. Gosh, I can't even think about that. Like that's that's, that's such a big number that I my know brain I can't, can't even... I can't imagine that amount of money in cash because the highest that cash goes is a hundred dollar bills. So you're like, aren't there million dollar bills? <sighs> no. Oh. Do you make Don't. Them? <laughs> I can make carry, I can make million carrying, dollar bills. They, they're carrying like this small stack of million dollar bills. And it's like just thirty of them, <laughs> or eighteen, I guess. It's like eighteen, and then like just a few hundred thousand bills. Yeah. <laughs> okay. The robbery was orchestrated by Alan Face III of Compton with childhood friends Eric Damon Boyd of Buena Park, Eugene Lamar Hill Jr. of Bellflower, Freddie Lynn McCrary Jr. of Arletta, Terry Wayne Brown Sr. of Los Angeles, and Thomas Lee Johnson as of, uh, from Las Vegas. I like that they all have, like, very, like, bank robber Name? names. <laughs> like, does that just be, like... What do you mean by that? No, I just mean, like, the blah, 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 the third, the oh, senior, yeah. the junior... Yeah, I get that. I'm a senior. This is like this. This could have gone so much better for them if they weren't dumb. Cause like they <laughs> almost they left almost like no evidence. Like they almost got away with it until, um. Alan Pace, not Alan Pace. Oops. Uh, Alan Pace is the one who started it because he actually uh-huh. worked at the. Uh, the bank. Yeah, he worked at the uh, <gasps> armored facility before. Oh my god! This is getting awesomer. <laughs> like this is getting don't, better and better. Don't, don't get awesomer was, ever. But it would be so much better. But like, okay. So okay, Eugene, yeah, go ahead. Eugene, Sorry, we'll stop interrupting now. <laughs> Eugene Lamar Hill Jr. um, like, implicated them because two years after the robbery in 1999, he accidentally gave this real estate broker that he was talking to a, like, uh, a wad of cash, like, a sack of cash mm-hmm. from the, uh, like, facility, from the bank um, that had the original, like, cash straps on it. <laughs> <laughs> that said the bank name? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dude. Oh, my God. Oh, I can't even... Man, not the real that? estate broker. Exactly. <laughs> Anyways, okay. Because like, and then the broker contacted the police, and then he yeah. confessed, and then he implicated the other people, <laughs> and also other people because they like after they got the money, money they like were laundering it. Um, yeah. So they implicated other people. That. You got it. <laughs> um. Uh. The dude who started at Pace was sentenced to 24 years in prison as of 2001, so he's gonna get out soon, maybe. <laughs> uh-huh. Um. Boyd was sentenced to 17 years, and the other four robbers received sentences. Uh, ranging from eight to ten years. Um, however, two people who assisted in money laundering were sentenced to two and a half. Okay. Imagine that one other guy who was in money laundering and just didn't get any time. <laughs> like, I didn't do this. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. It was masterminded by Alan Pace III, who worked for Dunbar as a regional safety inspector. Uh-huh. Um, while on the job, Pace had time to photograph and examine the LA, the LA's armored car depot. He recruited five of his childhood friends, providing them with detailed floor plans and camera locations, ski masks, pistols, a shotgun, and radio headsets. Um, the day before the radio robbery, radio. Sh- no. The day before the robbery, um, Pace was fired by Dunbar because he was <gasps> tampering with the company vehicles. Oh, true. <laughs> the night on the night of Friday, September twelfth, nineteen ninety-seven, the group of six assembled at a house party to establish an alibi before leaving. <laughs> he used his hey keys. guys, let's let's have a house party. No, hey, alibi whoa. house party. <laughs> mm-hmm. Nope. 
um, where, like, Pace used his keys to gain admittance to the facility. Like, he could still get into the facility. They didn't take away his keys? <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> Wait a minute. I guess not. Like, <laughs> this sounds what? like the bank's fault at this pro- at this point. You didn't take away his keys? He got fired, like, the day before? He also timed the security cameras and determined how they could be avoided. <laughs> Once oh, inside, God, no. they waited within the staff cafeteria, ambushing the guards one by one as they took their lunch breaks at approximately 12.30 a.m. They've been going up for lunch. Yeah. Because it's at night. So oh, yeah. they were like night guards. So it was like their dinner break or, or breakfast break. First of all, hold on. This, ne- this next one. Okay. Pace knew that on Friday nights, the vault was left open due to the large quantities of money being moved. Oh, so this, so it, this is the bank's fault. This is Dunbar's like, fa- fault. Like, like there, there's no way that, like, this is perfect. This is the perfect bank robbery. I understand that, like, like there's a lot good. of money, but like, you leave it open. Are you kidding me? That's how. I, that's what I'm saying. That's oh. what I'm saying. Like, rushing the two vault guards, the robbers managed to, to subdue all employees with duct tape before they could signal any alarms and did duct not fire. Duct tape. <laughs> I'm yeah, sorry. and they didn't fire a shot either. Like that's how quiet oh my it God. was. In thirty minutes, huh. the robbers had loaded eighteen point nine million dollars into a thirty week. minutes. <laughs> In thirty minutes, they're just like, ah, oh, I gotta get all this. That's a whole lunch break. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lunch break. Oh yeah. <laughs> into a waiting U-Haul truck. Oh gosh. And like Pace knew exactly which bags contained what, like what sort of bills. Like if they yeah. contained a hundred or like fifty. Right. Um, he also knew that where the recording devices for the security cameras were located and then just took them and then ret- they all returned to the house party. Yeah, um, house party! Exactly. Like, uh, the police immediately realized it was an inside job and closely examined Pace due to his recent firing but couldn't find anything. Um, <laughs> Except for the fact that they left him with the keys oh, and yeah. he knew how the ca- the security cameras worked. I, I just, I'm sorry, but this is the bank's fault. Like, Wait, I'm victim blaming. I forgot, what did he use duct tape for again? They used duct tape to, to like, subdue, subdue the, the guards. guards. Oh. Like, put over their mouth and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, like, the only thing that they found there was a plastic taillight lens which matched their U-Haul truck, but, like... D- but, like, U-Haul, so... Yeah. Uh, the gang worked hard to conceal their new wealth, waiting six months before attempting to launder the $18.9 million. Smart. Um, the bank enlisted the help of David Matsumoto, who is a Los Angeles immigration attorney. Eternity? Attorney. Sorry. Um, uh, and so, like, he looked into it. He structured the transactions by buying property and cars, investing in companies. Um, like, he was like, I gotta check all this, because if you get a lot of money, you're gonna want to, like, launder it. So he went around it. Um, and then, but Pace, who is, again, the main dude who, uh, orchestrated this, also created his own front companies to launder more money. Oh his own God. companies. So they would not be, uh, they had to, they enlisted someone else's help to buy the property so that they wouldn't be un- listed underneath right. Pace's name. Right. Uh, Boyd, who is another, uh, one of the dudes who mm-hmm. helped Rob, uh, through his father's company, laundered $177,000. Most or all of the robbers, though, uh, were laundering cash to buy a real estate. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, if you want, if you ever want, if you ever want to launder something, not saying that's good, don't do that, don't do that, I'm just saying, <laughs> if someone comes into a lot of money because of, like, real estate, just be careful. <laughs> yeah, here it is. I'm gonna report you, Grace. Hey, no, I don't, I don't have any money, I don't even have a job, okay. True. That was really loud, I'm sorry. True. I had to defend myself, because I don't work. True. <laughs> Two years after the robbery, though, Hill aired when he gave a real estate broker friend a stack of cash-bound together with the original branded currency straps 
Yeah. Oh gosh. And then de- like, and then his friend went to the police, and the detective knows that Hill had rented a U-Haul on the day of the robbery, oh, but they didn't check that they, earlier. They, yeah. <laughs> After finding the they, like plastic okay, thing. Okay, so they they ran through Pace's background, but not like any of the people he knew. Exactly. Or like. <laughs> I'm I'm really sorry, but like I'm victim blaming right now. This is the bank's fault. Like one hundred percent. There are so many ways they could have prevented this. It, it, oh my god. Even yeah. at the end it, like at the end, uh not even all the money was recovered because like they laundered it and it was right. going everywhere. Less than yeah. five million of the US of the money, like US five million dollars of the money was ever recovered with some thirteen point nine million still unaccounted for. Oh my god. Jesus. Yeah, so that's that's pretty much it. There might be a movie based on it i would love that but like we we love movies inspired off of true crimes we talk about so bling that is ring. so true i remember bling ring was so the first one that's true that's pretty much it i can't believe like man how do you how are you, you really like, got away with that and then armored the- bank you're an armored bank dude how do you mess you up think the first thing you would do was change all of the like cash straps on all of the money uh-huh. or try to destroy all evidence and- right like it's just there are so many things you could have done better but you still got away with it until the, that point so you i know, yeah. you got sent to prison so <laughs> how did the police just not check the u-haul they find this like plastic thing that they knew came off a u-haul and then it didn't go to u-haul and then check who you know yeah they couldn't ask like they're the police i feel like they could okay yeah uh that was my story okay i liked it (laughs) i did i did too thank you very interesting i'm gonna be talking about the murder of teresita bassa um which went unsolved for like decades i believe so uh bassa was born in 1929 in the philippines and she came to the United States in the 1960s in the hopes of um, earning a better life. Um, she became a respiratory therapist at um, Edgewater Hospital. Um, she was, you know, like leading a quiet and unassuming life, um, just trying to make a better life for herself. Um, she was also pursuing her master's degree in music. So she, she, wow. she had a future ahead of her. But um, one night on February 21st, 1977, Ruth Loeb phoned Teresa and they chatted for about 30 minutes. Uh, Loeb would later testify that Teresa was um, expecting a friend to come over, but didn't give any further details about who it was or like the purpose of his visit. Um, and then an hour after Loeb uh, had last spoke to Bassa, the fire department was called to... Um, Bass's apartment after neighbors complained of smelling smoke in the area. Firefighters ultimately discovered Bassa naked and buried under a mattress with a knife protruding from her chest. Um, investigators ultimately determined that despite initial appearances, uh, Teresa wasn't the victim of sexual assault and there was no physical evidence to lead police to her potential murderer. Um, for about five months, um, the police had no leads and no idea who could possibly want Teresa Bassa dead. However, six months after she was murdered, the Washington Post reported that Dr. Jose uh, C. Chua Jr., um, who was a co-worker of hers, uh, claimed his wife, Remem Bias, um, was having visions about Teresa's murder. We know how visions go at this point. <laughs> I feel like yeah. visions are not very reliable. <laughs> um, so Dr. Chuis, uh had claimed that his wife was in, in a trance. Um, when he pressed his 
entranced wife further about her identity, he said, I was really surprised and scared when I asked her the name, and she answered, Oko i Teresa da Bassa. I'm sorry, I'm not. Wait, that basically just means I am Teresa da Bassa. Um, but she told me I had nothing to be scared of. She was really pleading for me to help solve her murder. According to um, the book, Teresa da, A Voice from the Grave, Bassa's ghost pointed the finger at Alan Showery, Showery? Um, who was a respiratory therapist and was also a co-worker of hers. Um, and although Showery um, initially tried to get the case against him thrown out because all the evidence came from the great beyond, police testified that Showery um, went quietly with investigators when he was suspected in the murder. After an initial mistrial, uh, Showery ultimately decided to plead guilty to the crime on February 23rd, 1979, which is two years after the murder was committed. Um, and he was sentenced to 14 years in prison for his crime. He was ultimately let out on parole in 1983, and evidence suggests that he returned to New York City shortly after his release. So <laughs> this case was solved by a woman's vision. Um, huh. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So, because usually police do not rely on uh, psychics. That's what the, that's what the word yeah, is. Yeah, I remember we talked about yeah. this last um, last episode, too. Yeah, that, like, usually police don't rely on psychics because it's not reliable knowledge at all. It's going off of intuition, and sometimes they're just making it up to... It's not factual. Right. Yeah. But, um, but I guess this one was actually solved. And he was only in prison for four years out of 14 uh, which gives me the ick yeah because how That's he murdered her was very gruesome yeah and, and he put her underneath a mattress with a knife sticking yeah, out like her with the did they know like what his motive might have been um well since he was a co-worker i assume they probably had some like unresolved issues or maybe yeah okay so um it says here that when he confessed to her murder he said that he left her apartment and he made a plan to return and rob her. Um, when he returned, uh, she let him back in. Um, and when she turned around to lock the door, he grabbed her from behind and attacked her. Um, he disrobed her to make it look like it was a sexual crime. Um, and then he took her mattress, placed it over her body and set it on fire. On fire? Oh so God. it doesn't look like there was really any motivation besides the fact that maybe... I don't know. Maybe he's he, evil. <laughs> yeah, because how do you go from deciding to rob someone and then immediately being like, mm, I think I want to murder this person? You know. Sometimes I know that does happen, like it's gone wrong, but with yeah, him, yeah, that yeah. That I think that wraps up for today's episode. Thank you for being on our episode Yay. today, Grace. Yay. Yay. Thank you for it was inviting gr- me. It was, was a great. Going. It was a great case too. Yep. So <laughs> it was nice having another human voice. <laughs> On here. I bet, yeah, I bet our uh, listeners are really glad that they're not hearing the Yo, same two my voices. Fi- <laughs> my five million subscribers, <laughs> make sure to hit that bell. Um, and we will see you next week. Bye. 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 <laughs>